Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, an unfair housing walking tour of Brooklyn. Plus, some wines for the fourth, like a sparkling rosé, to pair with sparklers. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm Ashley Ford, joined in the studio by producer Ross Tuttle. Hello, Ross. Hello, Ashley. How you doing today, Ross? I'm all right. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. You know, something on your Twitter feed jumped out at me this morning, Ashley. Oh, yeah? And here's what i got to say. How can we depend on your generation <laughs> to take care of things in the future when they don't know their history? Of course, I am talking about your friends, significant others, completing George, Michael, and boy, George. Yes. Okay. So, for the record, my fiance thought that George Michael was boy George and that he used to be in the band Culture Club and just went by the name boy George when he was in Culture Club, which is not true and not the case. And he just scrubbed history of Wham? What, what happened with Wham? <laughs> yeah, I don't think he knows much about Wham or cares about Wham. You have to understand also, my fiance was born in 1990. And even though I am only slightly older than him, I have a... It's important history. I understand that it's important history, Ross. I'm going to tell him what you said, and he's going to get his act together. (laughs) He's going to get his act. Pronto. Okay, good, good, good. Now into important matters. Fourth Mm -hmm. of July is coming up, and nothing says Fourth of July in Brooklyn like foam hot dog hats, (laughs) water-soaked bread, and gobbling as many weenies as you can in ten minutes. No. Yes. (laughs) No. Talking about... The Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest yeah. tomorrow. This is an international event. It is an international event. Do you know event. that 1.1 million people watched this on ESPN last year? <laughs> I didn't. 35,000 people saw it in person. A lot of them were in those foam hats with the bright pink weenie drizzled yeah. in mustard. I am certain that those things are true. I just know that every time I eat a hot dog, I feel like it's a gamble. I don't really know how it's going to go or how that's going to turn out for me. So I can't really imagine taking the odds of eating 72 and a half hot dogs in 10 minutes. I'm good. I'm going to pass on that. A couple other data points. So that was Joey Chestnut last year's winner. Sorry, 73 and a half dogs in 10 minutes. Nah, I'm good. The women's winner, Miki Sudo, 41 hot dogs. That including the buns that they dip in a cup of water. And that makes me think you don't have taste buds, like you were born without them. <laughs> they, they just swallow them whole, I guess. And the winners received ten grand, which I think is just about enough to cover an uninsured trip to the emergency room for gastrointestinal perforation. Yeah. That's ridiculous. That's just so seventy-three and a half. <laughs> Surely <laughs> Jesus did I not wear a like... crown of thorns for somebody to dip. <laughs> a hot dog bun in water and shove it down their own throat. That's how you know, whoo, we living in our last days. 73 and a half of those. Not having it. Not having it, Ross. No. Nope. I, I just think like 73 and a half hot dogs should be like your lifetime oh consumption God. quota. Not like, even. Not even eat more of that. Not even. No. 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 I don't know if I've eaten <laughs> that many in my life. No, me neither. I think I read something when I was younger that just put me off of it. Every once in a while I can... Mm. overcome right. that fear and general disgust mm. and have myself a hot dog, but it takes a lot, and I've never had enough of that energy for 73 and a half of them. Well, tomorrow, 10 a.m. festivities begin, if you want to go check it out. I'm all right. Okay. I'm good, love. Enjoy. All right. We had on a couple of weeks back the publisher-editor of OR Books, who dropped this gem after the interview. 
He was editing A New Hope for Mexico, the book written by Andres Manuel López Obrador, otherwise known as the now president-elect of Mexico. We have on the phone Colin Robinson to tell us about this major moment in hemispheric politics. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, this was his third time running. What do you think made the message compelling enough this time around for him to secure the vote? Well, I think it was a combination of things. I think from what uh, Lopez Obrador says himself, there's incredible dissatisfaction with the way that Mexico has been run for decades. And the main problem there seems to be, according to him, that the system at the top level of government is completely corrupt. People go back and forth between business and government office. I mean, that happens in the United States to some degree, but I think in Mexico uh, it's absolutely endemic. People serve in the government and then go into private enterprise and make their fortunes and then come back into the government. Hmm. And there's not really any division between public service and private profit. Mm -hmm. And I think people are really, really fed up about that. Mm. So Lopez Obrador comes in and says, I am going to tackle corruption at the highest levels of the Mexican government. I'm going to cut the salaries of people who are working for the government. Uh, I'm going to introduce transparency so that people can see what's going on. I'm going to stop people leaving and going and making big fortunes in private companies after they've left the government. And people have connected with that. Absolutely. In some ways, like his own version of drain the swamp. And I wonder, you know, people have been talking about him and calling him Trumpian in some respects, that he doesn't take criticism well, he's not a fan of the media, and he also got a lot of support from evangelicals in the election. What do you say about this? And are there any indications of this in, in the book? No, I don't think so. I, I think that notion that populists of the left and of the right have a lot in common is really mistaken. Mm. Uh, you know, Trump um, has packed his cabinet with millionaires, billionaires, uh, and he's enacting legislation which increases the wealth of the richest people in the United States. Mm -hmm. Lopez Obrador pledged that he is going to increase taxes on the very rich and that he's going to spend money on infrastructure and on welfare support for the poor to try and close the income gap there. I mean, that's a pretty important distinction. I mean, they may both rail against the media, but I think in Lobez Obrador's case, the reason that he rails against the media is because it's a right-wing media that attacks the left. And, hmm. well, fair enough. I mean, in Trump's case, you know, he's got Fox News there behind him. I mean, he doesn't really need anything else. Absolutely. Colin, can you tell me, should he be considered a darling of the socialist movement, or has he reined that in? Uh, well, I think he's probably being a bit more moderate now than he was when he wrote the book that we're publishing, A New Hope for Mexico. He wrote that in 2016. It's actually two books that we pulled together mm -hmm. to make into one. And he's pretty uh, feisty in that book about calling out the people in the Mexican government for what they are. You know, he's not very complimentary about them, put it like that. <laughs> he's still basically a socialist. You know, he comes mm -hmm. from the left. Mm -hmm. I know he's quite close friends with um, 
Jeremy Corbyn, the leader mm. of the British Labour Party. I think they holiday together mm. uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and Corbyn sent out a tweet uh, after Sunday saying what uh, a great thing for Mexico this was. So I think you'd have to see him in that mould of Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie Sanders, uh, a wide-eyed revolutionary. This is not Fidel Castro, you know. Right. But definitely someone who believes in redistributing wealth, investing in infrastructure, trying to, uh, I think he's quite keen on having a conversation with the people running the drug cartels to try and tamp down the violence, to give opportunities to young people so that they don't feel the only course for them is to go into gangs. Mm. It's a kind of social democratic program for Mexico. And of course, also a big thing in it is opposition to the war. Mm. You know, he's made that very clear that he's against Trump's plan for the war. Mm. Uh, and what excites you most about his victory? You know, there's been an, a question as to whether the left in Latin America is moving forward or backwards, you know. I mean, there was a period where you had a sort of leftish government in Argentina under the Kirchners, and then you had Lula and uh, Dilma in Brazil. Uh, there were other left governments around the, the uh, around the region, um, but you know Lula's in jail now. Dilma was kicked out of office. The right are in control in Argentina. The right just won a runoff in uh, when the first round of the elections in Colombia. Although there's a quite left wing candidate standing in the second round there, so you know there was a feeling that this kind of left tide that had swept through Latin America was really uh, running out of steam. And I think this victory by Lopez Obrador shows that it's not as simple as that. You know, Mexico and Brazil are the two big countries in the region. If Mexico has gone to the left, and we don't know what's going to happen in Brazil, the election mm. is, I think, in October. But at the moment, in the opinion polls, Lula, even though he's in jail, mm. is the most popular candidate standing. So uh, who knows what's going to happen there? Right. Um, but, yeah, I, so I think it's really encouraging. I mean, if you have the politics that I do, which obviously you're mm. the left. <laughs> Absolutely. Colin, what else should people know about him, or what will they learn from reading the book? Well, he's, you know, it's quite a detailed program for what he wants to do. He wants to stop the privatization of the um, energy industry, much closer scrutiny of the handing out of big government projects, you know, the, the, with the money attached to them. He wants to clamp down on private industry making big profits out of government-financed infrastructure. Right. He wants to kind of create a, a more open, transparent Mexican government. You know, he got 53% of the vote, and I think second closest to him was 27%. Right. So this was a landslide victory. He's got a big mandate. Mm. He does. Yeah. And um, if, he, if, he can, if he can mobilize that support, then this could be really quite a powerful force. Absolutely. And Colin, how, just last question. How did you land the opportunity uh, of publishing the book? I'm curious. And when is it already available or when will it be available? Uh, it's publishing August 21st okay. uh, and it'll be in bookstores then. 
you can order it online now from us at allbooks.com, www.orbooks.com. You can say so you could pre-order it there now. No, I got it because my brother is a foreign correspondent who travels a lot around Latin America. He works for a Spanish newspaper called La Vanguardia. Hmm. And um, about a year ago, maybe a bit more than that, he said, you should look out for this guy, Lopez Obrador. You know, I think he's been with a real chance this time. I mean, he'd run twice previously in 2006 and 2012. And in 2006... Most commentators think that he actually won, you know, it was kind of stolen from him right at the last minute. But my brother said, yeah, I think he's, this time he's in with a real chance. And also he's written this book, which is actually pretty great. You know, it's a really good analysis of what's going on there and a program for change. So maybe you should translate it. So, um, you know, there wasn't much competition at that point. Mm. Yeah, so you lo- <laughs> it really worked so, out. No, it's very nice to be publishing presidents. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's unusual for them, one of my politics. Not, not, a, not a bad business model. <laughs> Colin, no, thank there you any, so much. If there are any other presidents out there whose books need to be published, I'd definitely like to hear from them, especially if they're on the left. <laughs> Colin, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Colin. Oh, it's good to talk with you. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye. Coming up, there are lots of Brooklyn tours these days. Historic tours, food tours, bike tours, graffiti tours. But we're going to talk about a special tour of Bushwick, highlighting the greed of the developers in the area. So don't go away. Last year, Silver Shore Properties was ranked dead last on the public advocate's worst landlord watch list. Their properties, mostly in Brooklyn, had 1,090 housing and preservation development violations. One coalition didn't want to let them forget it. They planned a protest to start in front of a Silver Shore property at 590 Bushwick Avenue, but they were too late. Residents and rent-stabilized units there had already been displaced. But there are 18 other similar properties on their guerrilla walking tour of the area's worst developments. To tell us about this action, which begins on July 9th, we're joined by the network director from Churches United for Fair Housing, Alex Pinnell. Alex, thank you so much for being here. And welcome to the show, organizer and steering committee member of the Bushwick Community Plan, Stephanie Cansell. Thanks for coming on 112BK. Thanks for having us. So first, Alexandra, tell us how local churches in Bushwick got involved in civic activism. What does fair housing really mean, and what does it mean to the church? I will say that our organization and our involvement with churches actually started in a crisis moment. About 10 years ago, there were five sites of city-owned land that were going to be developed as essentially segregated housing, based on the bedroom sizes that would have excluded black and Latino families, as well as preferences that would have only been given to predominantly white Williamsburg and not included predominantly black Bed-Stuy, which was just across the street. In that moment, there there was a crisis. There has been an affordable housing crisis in New York probably as far back as anyone can remember. And so churches came together, churches in North Brooklyn came together to fight against this development, to fight against segregated housing in North Brooklyn, and to ensure that affordable housing and, you know, housing that was being built would be accessible to everyone, especially to black and Latino families. So... 
what affordable housing means to us and means to the church is housing that's truly affordable. Mm -hmm. To the mayor, affordable housing means pretty much anything, anything that is below what's considered market rate. So apartments that you have to make $100,000 a year to live in are still considered affordable by this administration. Yeah, affordable um, for who? Yeah. Affordable <laughs> for who? So for us, affordable means apartments that have rents that match up with the incomes of the people that live in those neighborhoods. So in North Brooklyn, most families are making under $40,000 a year to us and to the church, who's fighting to keep its members, fighting to keep people in the community. Right. Affordable means apartments that those people that have been in that community for 50 years can afford to live in. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Stephanie, can you tell me, who are the members of the coalition? and the reason for these protests that are taking place. Okay, so we have several different allies and member churches that will be participating right. um, in the Take Back Bushwick action. Some of our allies include Brooklyn Legal Association, Brooklyn Legal Corporation A, mm -hmm. Los Sudes, uh, Make the Road New York, and several different community-based organizations who have been advocating for affordable housing for years now. Um, so it only makes sense that the people who represent the community and the people who have been fighting for that long take part in something that we ultimately know directly impacts us all. Right, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the really interesting factors here, is that people don't think it affects us all. They think they can treat this group of people a certain way, and that that's not going to reverberate back into their lives. And it always will. It right. absolutely will. But the lesson's not being learned. This is very, very interesting to me. Can you tell me, Alexandra, a little bit about the guerrilla walking tour? How did that come? to be? What was the thought process for that? Um, sure. So Stephanie and I are both uh, members of the Bushwick Community Plan and have been working, uh, the, the BCP has been working for four years, uh, almost five now, to build a plan to create a, a framework for a brighter future for Bushwick, um, mm -hmm. to stop Bushwick by being steamrolled by development. And so over the past few months, as we get close to finishing the plan, we realize that we've seen so many other neighborhoods not get what they want. Right. We've seen so many other neighborhoods really lose in these rezonings. Right. And so we wanted to take an opportunity and a, mo and a moment to highlight to Bushwick residents, but also to the community at large, what's really happening? Why do we need this rezoning? Why do, mm -hmm. so, do we need community control over this rezoning? Right. And what is it that's, what are the lessons and, and what's happening in Bushwick that is echoing throughout the city? So the idea for this started um, in our office and, and we wanted to point out as many of the, the terrible buildings that mm. are, are going up right now. So we call them middle finger buildings. Talk to me about that. <laughs> I like that. You keep saying so, middle finger building. Well, actually, you said it before we started taping. You guys mentioned middle finger middle finger buildings, and I literally wrote it down because I was like, "We're going to talk about middle finger buildings." So we call them that because for a couple of reasons. Number one, because uh, in Bushwick doesn't have a lot of high rise housing. It's mm -hmm. mostly two, three family homes, so row houses that are, are two and two and three stories. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is a developer buys one of these small buildings, pushes all of the residents out through harassment, through buyouts, through mm -hmm. construction harassment, through threats, through raising their rent, so forces them out, tears the building down, and builds a significantly taller building, five to eight stories. Right. So we call them middle finger buildings because they look like middle fingers, they stand out in that way, but also because of what they're saying to the neighborhood. The sentiment is the same. It's, this building is not for you. And I guess 
to be, you know, to be crass, it's saying F you. Yeah, it's saying F you to Bushwick. So, Which is interesting yeah. because Bushwick, you know, keeps getting touted as like this up and coming, you know, oh, it's so up and coming Bushwick as if people have not always lived right. there. Right. And you have always lived there. My entire life. Your entire life. Can you talk to me about what you've seen over the course of your life in terms of housing? Okay, so it's very unique, my position, because I'm an only child. My Three generations of my family was raised in Bushwick, and my mom and I previously had a three-bedroom apartment mm -hmm. in which we paid about $600 rent for. Right. However, we were ultimately bought out by our landlord. He harassed us for six to eight months, ended up buying us out. It ultimately just leads to increases in rent. See, these landlords and their harassment um, right. and displacement tactics, ultimately, they make you uncomfortable where you are. They make you uncomfortable being in your space. They withhold maintenance, heat and hot water. There are people who go without heat and hot water for six to eight months, even. They make it unbearable uh, and actually push you out. And from public school to middle school, I never sat in a classroom where there was a white student. It had been predominantly black and Latino since my birth. Uh, however, by the time I got to high school, we saw the change, and that was around the time that we were bought out of our three-bedroom apartment at that time. Currently, we have a one-bedroom apartment in which we pay about $1,400 for, and that's one of the lower rents. Um, there are people wow. who pay $2,000, $3,000 for one-bedroom apartments. How mm -hmm. can a family be expected to bear that kind of increase? Especially when I, you only make twenty-seven dollars to $35,000. It's impossible. I can't imagine what that must be like. And it definitely makes a lot of sense why you would be taking this fight personally, to be perfectly honest. Even though people say it's not personal, we know that it affects people's real personal lives. Mm -hmm. Really quickly, because we only have a minute left. Alexandra, can you tell us more about Bushwick Community Plans and what you guys have coming up next? Um, sure. So the Bushwick Community Plan is very close to being finalized. It's been five years of very active engagement of uh, community members and stakeholders in Bushwick. And we, along with our community, have worked really hard to put together a plan that not just encompasses a zoning change, but it also has, like, sorry, says resources, funding, and plans for our school, for health care, for environmental impacts, for parks. And so we're really trying to create a comprehensive plan that will ensure that our residents, Bushwick residents, can stay in Bushwick and that the right. Bushwick they stay in is the Bushwick we want to see. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. That sounds fantastic for everybody. Right. So, somebody wants to go on the gorilla walking tour, how do they do that? We have a list of dates. Uh, we ultimately are pushing the flyers out. We're doing all of our outreach. You can contact us via email. Mm -hmm. um, we'll be more than happy to send out our contact, but right. we're available on all social media platforms at CUFFH. Uh, um, and we're all available at cuff.org. You can visit our website. We have different locations, and we'll ultimately have the list up there for all 18 of the actions. Ladies, thank you so much for this. Thank I really you for having your us. Time. All right. We've been doing a lot of whining over the state of the world. Well, we're ranting, we're arguing, we're critiquing, we're protesting, not whining. I don't whine, but I do like wine. And that's why we have our next guest, because we're assuming you do too. And that you might like some suggestions for when you walk into your local liquor store to pluck the perfect bottle. 
to give us those suggestions. We welcome to the for the first time on 112BK, but not the first time at Brick, wine educator Sarah Tracy. Thanks for coming on the show, Sarah. I'm so happy to be here to talk about some summertime sips here. Yes, please let's talk about this because we also have cans and I am very into canned wine this summer. Is that a thing? Are people down with me on the canned wine thing? It's become massive. I'm totally shocked. I've been a fan of canned wine for a couple years now, mm -hmm. and I've kind of been tracking the trend and seeing what's happening with it. And then this year, all of a sudden, some of our favorite producers are making options in can. And I think, you know, it speaks to just the casual approach that especially I think younger drinkers are taking to wine. Oh, yeah. You don't need a white tablecloth and crystal and china and a five-course meal. I mean, you can just throw a can in your bag, go on a camping trip, and these cans are great for summertime fun. If you want to go to a concert or a beach or a pool, anywhere you can't bring glass, I think it's great to have really good options in can. I didn't even think about the fact that now I can take cans of wine where I can't take glass. That yeah. is such a game changer. I remember a couple years ago for the first time having that Sofia Coppola wine that comes in the little cans yep. with the straw mm -hmm. that for me was like, oh my, this is everything I've ever wanted because inside yeah. I am an adult who just <laughs> wants a version of a Capri Sun. But these look like good wine in cans, which is why I am so excited to try these. Yeah, they're getting a little more serious. I find like really great wine producers right. are kind of venturing into this market. Mm -hmm. um, they're super eco-friendly, which is another big advantage. Really? Well, the aluminum can, it's recyclable. It's super light to ship, so you're right. going to get a lower carbon footprint all around. And it's a relatively easy process to can, so it, it makes a lot of sense, I think, for the industry. I love that. Okay, so from many levels, I'm into the wine and can situation. Let's try three of them. Can you okay. tell me a little bit about them? Yeah, well, I did bring, just because we have Independence Day tomorrow, yes. I did bring one wine and bottle that I want to actually start with. Yes. Because um, there's a really cool story behind this wine, and I think that we think about, you know, the 4th of July mm -hmm. as having fun and bar barbecues and fireworks, but we can't forget the historical nature of the holiday, right? Right. And so um, this is uh, called Dahi Naste. Mm -hmm. um, it is a white wine from the Canary Islands. I was Ooh. just there this spring. Canary Islands, if anyone's not familiar, it is a small kind of group of islands right, out, right outside the north coast of Africa right. in the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. So it is thought by many historians that the toast, when they signed the Declaration of Independence, was a Canarian wine. Really? Yes. So, I guess that kind of makes sense. Yeah, so it. Thomas Jefferson, yeah. Ben Franklin, George Washington, basically the reason why, cheers, is because where all the ships that were coming from Europe, from Asia, they would stop in the Canaries, they would refuel and restock before they would go on to the colonies. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the wine that was consumed by our founding fathers was Canarian, and it's very likely that key yeah. wine for that toast was a Canarian wine just like this. This tastes really bold to me. Well, it's I, a full I like body it. wine. Yeah. Um, I love it because you get that refreshing kind of citrusy little thing you at the do. front. But it finishes very savory. It's a volcanic yeah. wine. These are volcanic islands, so you almost get mm. a little salty minerality in the finish. That's and what it is, the yeah. mineral. I, yes. I didn't even know that there were volcanic wines, but yeah. I feel like those are the wines for me. You know, people want wine even if they live on top of a volcano. They're going to find a way to plant those vines. Oh, yeah. And they're going to find a way to make these wines. And so for me, like summer seafood, mm -hmm. like clams, steamers, lobster, oh. shrimp, 
on the grill, like something like the Tahanaste Blanco would be perfect. You're making me hungry. And you're you're giving you're getting a little history, yes. a little bit of that um, piece of American independence in this your glass. This is fantastic. So it's a really fun wine, and um, if you want to move on to cans, yes, yes, okay, cool. cans. So we have a really awesome lineup here. Um, in terms of can wine, I brought three. So mm -hmm. we have the Euphoria White. Um, the House Wine Rosé, and then the Cascadian Outfitters Red. Mm -hmm. I think maybe Rosé. Yes. One you want to try? Oh, yeah, Great. you know me. These are all from Washington State. And uh, Is Washington State just really, really doing it in the it canned is, wine? Yeah, well, think about market. the Pacific Northwest. Like, you know, I think everything we've been talking about in terms of being sustainable and eco-friendly. That makes sense. Um, the values there are really in line with all of that. And it's a place for a lot of outdoor activities, too, right? You think about camping um, and just being in the great outdoors if you're in Washington or Oregon. So um, I do think a lot of Washington producers are getting in on this. For each can, this is about six bucks. Mm -hmm. Half a bottle of wine. Yeah, in there. that's. You have to be a little <laughs> bit careful because it's delicious. Right. You're just kind of sipping away, and you drink the whole can, and it turns out it's a whole half a bottle of wine. That um, doesn't sound like the worst thing I've ever done. Cheers, or no, that's good. That, <laughs> we already cheers, so yeah, I guess I, we're done. Personally, I don't like to drink it out of the can. I really right. like to pour it into the glass. The can, you don't get those wonderful aromas, and a lot of the experience with the wine is the aromatic part of it. And so I think pour it into a glass or like a solo cup if you don't want to get right. see if you're again in a glass-free zone. Um, so rather than drinking it out of the can, I think it's nice to pour it into a glass. But isn't this delicious? That's lovely. Yeah. Okay, let me. Hmm. I am very interested in this spiked and sparkling. Yes. So we're not only doing canned wine, but you're starting to see other canned beverages kind mm -hmm. of come to the forefront. Canned cocktails are becoming a thing, but I really love um, this product. So it's called Truly Spiked and Sparkling. Mm -hmm. It's a flavored seltzer that has a little bit of alcohol. It has about 5% alcohol by volume, so it's nice and light, but if you like like everyone's into the LaCroix cans, you know, those delicious oh, yeah. selves, all different flavors. I have my LaCroix. Yeah, this is sort of the the boozy version of that, but it's nice and light. There's only 100 calories per can, so if you're watching that, um, low sugar, um, it's kind of a nice option. This is a raspberry and lime flavor, and it's really oh, yeah. awesome, right? I could play with that. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. And so they're making them in all different flavors, and it's just something that you can throw into your cooler for your barbecue. Right. Easy breezy, especially if you're hosting a party. Like, I don't want to spend the whole time mixing drinks for people. Mm -hmm. You know, Maybe I want to relax and enjoy as well. Yes. Or opening bottles, or where's yes. my wine key when I need it. Um, so just having these options, you can throw them in the cooler, even the reds, I like to chill. And just keep them there, and they're super user-friendly and delicious, and a really great option for your summer barbecue and party. Sarah, thank you so much Anytime. for this. I gotta tell you, I've been curious but a little afraid to pull the trigger. Yeah. And now I feel like I wanna find some place to go and just stock up on some canned Absolutely. No, no need to be afraid of the can. The packaging doesn't indicate the quality inside. So yes, same with box right. wine. It goes for box wine as well. There's some really great ones coming out now. But um, yeah, can, go get into it and see thank new you. trend. Thank you, this is fantastic. You're I welcome. That. And that's the show for today. We're off for the rest of the week, so enjoy the fort, stay cool, and join us next week for conversations with another candidate for New York State Attorney General. A journalist about her tender date with a Trump supporter, hmm, 
and a special end of season episode. The whole show with me and three social media mavericks. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Bruchowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasak and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.